daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Chinese Premier Li Qiang is visiting Germany in his first overseas trip since taking office. What issues have been discussed and what progress has been made in bilateral ties? China has cut the benchmark lending rate LPR. What impact will it have on the property market? The UAE and Qatar have reopened embassies after a six-year break in ties. What has led to the easing of Gulf rivalries? First, on today's show, Chinese Premier Li Qiang is visiting Germany in his first trip to Europe since he took office in March. The Premier said Beijing is ready to work with Berlin to further explore cooperation and new development in bilateral ties. He has met German President Frank Walter Steinmeier and Chancellor Olaf Scholz. John Dan has more. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has begun an official visit to Germany. He met with President Frank Walter Steinmeier at the Presidential Palace in Berlin on Monday. The premier said he attached great importance to bilateral relations and emphasized that the upcoming seventh China-Germany intergovernmental consultation seeks to explore cooperation potential and foster new developments. President Steinmeier expressed Berlin's willingness to collaborate with Beijing in safeguarding trade liberalization and meet challenges such as climate change. He expressed opposition to decoupling and any form of camp confrontation. Premier Li Qiang also attended a seminar with representatives of the German business community, where the management of risks was a major topic. On promoting China-Germany win-win cooperation, Li Qiang said risk prevention and cooperation are not opposites, and cautioned against simply equating interdependence with insecurity. And he made it clear that failure to cooperate is the biggest risk, and failure to develop. Is the biggest insecurity. German business representatives said eliminating risks requires strengthening international cooperation, and decoupling will not work. Li Qiang called for maintaining industrial supply chains through high-quality and high-level practical cooperation. As for specific problems, Li urged all parties to analyze them case by case and jointly respond to them. In the evening, Li Qiang was welcomed into the Chancellery by Olaf Scholz for a behind-closed-doors dinner meeting. More discussions on ties and business talks are expected on Tuesday. That's John Dan reporting. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Chu Hongjian, head of European Studies Department at China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Chu. Hi. What do you make of the significance of Premier Li Qiang's visit to Germany? Also, you know, it's a, a continuity of this、uh, high-level exchange between China and Germany since.、Uh, Uh, last November, I think it's also a uh, first uh, uh, government-level consultant、uh, between China and Germany for the new governments. So I think、uh, it's、uh, significant for China and Germany to keep the、uh, stable and、uh, sustainable cooperation, especially in a you know uh, instable uh, world.、Mm-hmm. So I think over、uh, this time, I think it will give a new dynamic. For this、uh, cooperation between China and Germany,、uh, both、uh, also you know the biggest、uh, trading partner、uh, for each other, and also at the same time, because it's、uh, a worldwide、uh, consultation, so it will give some another I mean space for this cooperation beyond the economic and the trade.
Following that seminar with German business community, Li Qiang urged German business leaders not to equate interdependence with insecurity, and he said failure to cooperate is the biggest risk, and failure to develop is the biggest insecurity. What do you make of those statements? We need to understand the statements by Premier Li regarding to the so、uh, the issue of uh, uh, risk and insecurity.、Uh, also, you know the background is so far. Uh, within the Germany, there are not of、uh, debate on its policy、uh, towards China,、uh, including some worry、uh, from uh, uh, especially some、uh, politicians in Germany about so-called the、uh, risk of、uh, you know, over、uh, dependency on Chinese market, and also at the same time,、uh, some people、uh, raised the issue of uh, uh, you know de-risking. Uh, from China and、uh, to try to reshape the policy、uh, of Germany towards China. So I think now the big question for uh, some uh, you know, debates in Germany is: we need to define what's the risk, where is、uh, where it is from. Also, you know, the、uh, background would be the COVID nineteen in the past two or three years. Certainly, there are some problems. For、uh, you know,、um, supply chain and industry chain for some uh, uh, European countries, and also because of the stimulation of the Ukrainian crisis, there are some more worry about the so-called insecurity of the economy. But I think that、uh, for China and Germany cooperation, there is not、uh, any issue of uh, uh, risking. As we know, always China will insist its、uh, opening、uh, policy. So I don't think there will be any worry from uh, uh, Germany about the Chinese、uh, attitude towards so-called、uh, weaponization of trade and market. So I think this time, primarily,、uh, you know,、uh, raised the issue and also、uh, openly、uh, give some、uh, very clear、uh, message to the German society. Yeah, and actually,、uh, Chancellor Scholz's cabinet recently adopted the country's first ever national security strategy, and that describes China as acting increasingly as a competitor and rival to Berlin. Although it also admits that without Beijing, many global challenges and crises cannot be solved. H- how does that reflect Germany's current approach to China? Also, you know, because of the、uh, huge change of the politics、uh, within Germany. Uh, now it's in a, it's a, it's a, it is in a, a difficult time、uh, for German government try to find a balanced attitude towards its uh, uh, policy approach. Also, you know because of competition between different parties and also different sectors within the government. So now it looks like uh, uh, Chancellor Schulz and his government try to keep a balance between different、uh, I mean concerns or. Issues from different、uh, parts. So now I think that uh, uh, certainly uh, politically, the German government try to find its own position, especially between the gaming between China and the United States. But at the same time, the huge cooperation and the huge、uh, common interests between China and Germany also give a very big concern for economic cycle and also especially public.、Uh, Uh, 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 people, so I think now the、uh, the challenge、uh, for the、uh, German government is how to continue its、uh, 
I mean, uh, principle and also uh, uh, on the basis of the uh, successful experience uh, of uh, cooperating with China. And to uh, give some more, I mean, uh, uh, constructive response to any kind of uh, suspicion, uh, not only uh, within the Germany, and also from outside. Mm-hmm. Well, to what extent do you think Germany's China policy is influenced by the ongoing rivalry between the U.S. and China? How does this rivalry impact Germany's strategic choices and also its efforts to navigate its relations with both countries? Certainly, as we know, there are some uh, uh, negative impact from the so-called gaming between China and the U- United States. Since they are especially Trump administration, at that time, the United States tried to impose so-called trade war against China, and it also gave some, uh, uh, you know, negative impact on German industry. As we know, uh, German industry gets so many benefits benefits from this uh, international uh, division of labor, and uh, it tried to uh, get some more benefits from both American market and also Chinese market. But once there are some more uh, I mean, competition or even confrontation between China and the U.S. Certainly, they'll give some more, maybe higher price for uh, German industry and also its trade. But of course, at the same time, uh, there are more and more geopolitical, uh, I mean, factors uh, in the relations between China and the U.S. And also, it will give some uh, more impact on German uh, position, especially on its policy towards China. But of course, I think now the important thing for German government is to is to find out its own interests, and it should make clear what's the difference uh, between uh, German interest interests and American interests, and also then German should insist the so-called uh, strategic autonomy uh, to uh, insist its own position. Well, how does German business community perceive the risks and benefits regarding economic interdependence, and how does its stance differ from the position of the German government? Recently, we heard a lot of uh, voices from uh, German economic circle uh, uh, and also business people. Uh, we can find out a uh, very big different, different understanding about the Chinese market, about the common interests between China and Germany. Uh, we can find out uh, in the past uh, one and a one half one and a half year, uh, still there are some more uh, trade between two countries and also more investment from Germany uh, to China. So I think it's a very very uh, strong. Uh, I mean, proof that the German uh, economy will be a very very important part of this cooperation with China, and. Uh, uh, German uh, economy uh, will get some more benefits from the Chinese development economically. So I think now uh, it will be a problem for German government if it try to find some more political dimension or even strategical dimension in its relations with China. I think there will be some uh, distortion between so-called political position and the economic interests. So I think to deal with this uh, difficult situation, I think the German government should try to find out the, I mean, more synergy between uh, its so-called political position and its uh, economic interests uh, in the cooperation with China.
What's your thought on Premier Li Qiang's remarks about putting enterprises back into the driving seat in terms of risk prevention? I think Premier Li's remarks about his, uh, uh, I mean, the role of uh, uh, economic and also enterprises, uh, I think it's a, a reflect the, the, the stance from Chinese government that uh, we need to go back to a normal uh, track to deal with any problems or any challenges in the relations between China and Germany. For example, uh, for this economic cooperation, for any kind of uh, enterprises, uh, investment or other uh, activities, the government should have its own understanding that uh, what's the real function of the government. For example, to provide more you know, favorable environment, especially in policy, in pro- projects, that would be a real uh, or right uh, functions for the government. But unless there are some more uh, political or security consideration, especially in the cooperation, uh, in the uh, economic activities, certainly they will give some more, uh, I mean, uh, 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 there, there will be some more uh, bad or negative impact on, on any kind of a normal uh, economic cooperation. Okay, thank you, Dr. Cui Hongjian, Head of European Studies Department at China Institute of International Studies. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China has cut the market-based benchmark learning rate. The one-year loan prime rate came in at 3.55% Tuesday, down by 10 basis points from the previous reading. The over-five-year LPR, on which many lenders base their mortgage rates, was also lowered by 10 basis points to 4.2%. This is the first adjustment to the rate since August last year. For more, we are now joined on the line by Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Dr. Liu, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so what do you think are the f- key factors that led to the decision to cut the key lending benchmarks? I think they have several factors, but the major, uh, I think they have three key factors that uh, ask the government to cut the benchmark interest rate. The first, as we know, in the past two or three months, uh, the demand side in China in domestic market is quite weak, and the consumption enthusiasm is also very limited. It's uh, getting weaker than uh, before. And the third is, so we see that the global market has uh, uncertainties imposed on China's market. So we can see all this, uh, uh, how to uh, promote and stimulate spending on the demand side. I think one of the best ways is try to cut the benchmark as a whole. Okay, so how significant <clears throat> is the reduction in, in, in this one-year LPR and the five-year LPR, and, and especially how big of an impact will it have on the property se- sector? I think uh, when we're talking about how significant this uh, benchmark interest rate cut reduction is still too early to discuss because we need some time to see what could be happening, especially for one-year. This is only a short, uh, uh, short-term uh, effect, but the five year will have a long uh, term effect. So we have to see what could be happening in the uh, year to come. But I think in short term, 
the market will be boosted, and also enthusiasm for short-term borrowers will be excited that to have more loans and uh, spending. But uh, people and uh, especially for these uh, SME companies, they are still waiting for further uh, policies because uh, five-year loan still a bigger problem, the challenge for these companies. So we have to see. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you anticipate commercial banks implementing the LPR card cuts, and what e- what effects might they have on existing mortgage loans and new loan a- applications? I think at the moment that the mortgage loan or new loan uh, insurance is at the moment is not a bigger challenge for the commercial bank. The major problem for the commercial bank is how to get rid of possible risks when they. Uh, exciting or exercise the mortgage loan or new loan at the moment because they are seeing that some uncertainties and the challenges on the market. For, for instance, the manufacturing factor in the in May or April is getting worse. It's not is not so optimistic as the market expected. So that's why that uh, commercial banks are quite uh, cautious and reluctant to expand or to encourage the more mortgage loans or even new loans, I think they are still make some assessment for further or the hidden risks that could be possible uh, uh, showing that in the market, especially for those SME for five-year loans. This is a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then can you tell us more about the potential implications of, of the rate cuts on corporate investment as well as consumer spending in China? And, and how do these rate cuts align with uh, the government's broader economic goals and also the efforts to stabilize and support Chinese economy? As, as we know that uh, the most important thing for stimulate the spending or to encourage the uh, consumption in those uh, it's not only dependent on the interest rate. The interest rate is one of the important factors, but not the decisive. The decisive fact is the expectation for the future. Whether the expectation for the future is positive and optimistic, and then people will have courage to have more spending. Otherwise, they don't have any uh, good reason better to have more uh, spending at the moment. As we know that the geopolitical uh, tension in the world global uh, market and also the tension around the China's border and also the international uh, decoupling against China also have a very negative impact on the consumption and on the customers. I think the investment and the spending will be decided by the due uh, circulation domestically and also internationally. Mm-hmm. Okay, but do you expect further monetary easing measures from the PBOC in the near future? I think the government has still more tools in the basket, but uh, they are also very cautious and prudent. They do not have any aggressive uh, monetary policy at the moment. I think in the near future, I don't think that they will have more uh, similar uh, policies to support uh, easy financing or 
some similar policies. But uh, I think in other uh, aspects, for instance, from tax card or market access, uh, in this way that uh, they have more uh, policies. But in the financial sector, especially for the interest rate reduction, uh, we'll be very cautious. Not easy to have a further uh, similar uh, policies. Okay, so c- considering the limited options to further stimulus pa- measures, what alternative strategies or policies do you think the Chinese government can explore in order to bolster economic growth? I think the economic growth will be dependent on the market demand. Whether the market is uh, demand is uh, strong, getting strong, I think the supply chain will be getting strong. That's the that is the basis for the growth. And also we have to have a better expectation, make the people more insolvent, especially to encourage the SME companies to make more production in order to get a, a good position in domestic and the international market. But at the moment, I think they are still facing some uncertainties and headwinds from global uh, community. So many companies are still trying to uh, to be prepared for a new start. But at the moment, they are still waiting and uh, uh, trying to get uh, more trained people in order to get a whole uh, efforts that to stimulate their production because this year still is a difficult year for China's economy as well as the, for the global market. The same. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of the property sector, what other measures or policies could the Chinese government implement to further support the market and address related risks? I think the most important thing that we have to consider the new uh, uh, favorable uh, policies and the conditions to for new startup uh, companies, especially to have more employment rate, you know, to encourage the young people uh, to have more jobs. Only the, when they have good jobs, they have good income. When they have good income, that we have a good consumption. That is a good way to have economic growth. So I would like to um, suggest that China should follow uh, three new carriages. Before we have all the Tiger three carriages, that is investment, export, and the consumption. Now I think that the new three carriages should be good expectation and good uh, uh, management and also good confidence. These three new carriages can be promoted to have better economic growth. Well, thank you, Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. And let's take a look at the stock market. Stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished mixed today. Timothy Pope has more. The markets seem to have been hoping for a slightly deeper cut than the 10 basis points that the PBOC trimmed off the one-year and particularly the five-year alone prime rates. The Shanghai Composite Index slid about half of 1% today in response as uh, blue-chip stocks took a bit of a hit. The Shenzhen component and the Chinex board, though, which have a higher proportion of small-cap stocks, managed to stay positive, each adding between a quarter and a third of 1%. The five-year LPR is what most Chinese mortgages are based on, and a deeper cut might have energized property developer stocks today. But uh, instead, they were the biggest losers in Shanghai. CZN Holdings was off by 2.8%. 
Cinder Real Estate by 3.8% and China Vanka by 1.3%. The uh, smaller-than-expected cut to the LPR was also being felt on the global oil markets today. Traders were hoping that a larger cut would stimulate China's more traditional industries and therefore boost demand for fuel. So there was downward pressure on crude prices as well, and we saw PetroChina shares slipping by about 2%. Sinopec was down by 2.5%. That's Timothy Pope reporting. Coming up next, the UAE and Qatar have reopened embassies after a six-year break in ties. What has led to the easing of Gulf rivalries? The UK Parliament approved the report that found Boris Johnson misled Parliament over the Partygate scandal. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. The United Arab Emirates and Qatar have announced the reopening of their embassies after a six-year break in ties. The resumption of diplomatic missions comes at a time of easing Gulf rivalries after Iran reopened its embassy in Saudi Arabia following a China-brokered deal. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Tim Manderson, Director of Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Anderson. You're welcome. Um, so is this uh, the latest sign that uh, the diplomatic crisis with Qatar is coming to an end? I think the crisis, yes, but not the rivalry. There's ongoing rivalry because uh, Qatar represents a wider network called the Muslim Brotherhood, and the Saudis have always been jealous of many aspects of that. Mm-hmm. So what do you think are the main reasons behind this decision to reopen embassies between the UAE and Qatar after their six-year break in ties? Well, there have been attempts um, led by the Saudis to get the uh, Gulf Council cooperation states, all of the the, the monarchies of the, of the Persian Gulf, basically, to come together again. They've got their own organization there. Um, it was the Saudis that drove the purge, really, of, of Qatar back in 2017. But two years ago, in 2021, there was an agreement. And since then, there have been a number of steps to uh, work together again. So how significant is this development in terms of regional stability and also the easing of, of Gulf rivalries? Well, I think it's um, it's something happening within the Gulf, the GCC, basically, um, which have worked together in a number of respects, including, by the way, driving some of the sectarian wars in Iraq and Syria. Um, but there's always been this jealousy there, um, you know, that Qatar had this successful media operation called Al Jazeera, and it was linked into Turkey and the Muslim Brotherhood more broadly, even though Qatar's only a very small state. You know, the Saudis were jealous of that. They set up their own media organizations to compete with it. They funded different and and groups that were armed groups that were in Iraq and Syria and were um, sometimes cooperating and sometimes fighting, depending on their sponsors. But I think it represents, the reconciliation represents a broader process that's going on in the region of all of the states wanting to find relevance in the new circumstances. And the, the, the reconciliation between Iran and Saudi Arabia was really the big one. Okay, so in what areas do you think the two countries can cooperate in the future now that they have reestablished their diplomatic ties? Well, when when Qatar was pushed out by the Saudis um, six years ago, it was in a desperate state, really. There was a blockade there, um, and they had to rely on their good relationship with Iran to even fly their, their aircraft through through the um, space that was open to them, basically. So they were very restricted at first. So a lot of the trade and financial and um, 
investment channels are going to be loosened up again. Uh, I think we'll see more cooperation in those areas. Mm-hmm. Well, as we know, this comes amid a broader regional push for reconciliation, uh, most notably Saudi Arabia and Iran are also reopening embassies after their years of hostility. So what do you think is really behind this flurry of diplomatic activities across the region? Well, one of the important things is the declining role of the U.S. in the region. The U.S. has had a, played a very strong hand at divide and rule in the region, and they've used the Saudis in particular um, to enforce that, to um, promote these sectarian armed groups, for example. Qatar was involved in that too, um, as I said, and also Bahrain and the, the, U, the United Arab Emirates to some extent. But with the declining role of the U.S., with the failure of the new Middle East project that the U.S., had uh, promoted for so long, um, that is to say they wanted to weaken and destroy the independent states in the region. The the states that were involved in that, that were close to the US, are now looking for some new positioning. They don't want to be irrelevant. They want to still have influence in the new, uh, the new region as the restructuring goes on. Um, what do you make of China's engagement in, in re- resolving conflicts and fostering dialogue in the region? Well, it's been very important. China's role was the most outstanding feature really of the, uh, and probably the the essential feature of the reconciliation between Iran and the Saudis, both of which have now quite strong relationships with China. But it's important to notice that China's been a, a type of a healing influence there, um, bringing together Iran and the Saudis, but also that led to the Saudis having some reconciliation with Syria. And now we see this reconciliation within the Gulf Council cooperation. As I said before, it's really a move away from the big dominant power using divide and rule in the region to um, a mutual interest being being uh, facilitated by uh, the good offices of China. So what do you think China is looking for in, in its engagement in the region? Because some say China is actually trying to reshape the US-led international order. Do you think that's really the case? I think it has a lot of relevance in West Asian region in particular because the China's Belt and Road Initiative has important objectives there in in certain areas which are currently still um, subject to U.S. intervention. Yemen, for example, the strategic role of Yemen in terms of um, trade is is a very important one. And there we still have an ongoing war basically driven by the U.S., but that may be changing too. That's one of the factors that led to the, that was, in, oh, sorry, is involved in the reconciliation between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Hopefully we'll see some greater progress in Yemen now. But basically, what the US calls CENTCOM, their military, they, their military arrogates certain sections of the, of the world to their military, basically. And the Pentagon has a, a group called CENTCOM, which dominates most of the Middle Eastern countries and Egypt, uh, in, in the one African country that's involved in it there. It overlaps very broadly with the sphere in which uh, China wants to pursue the, the infrastructure um, network that's, that's represented by the BRI. Well, if we look at um, China's role in brokering that deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, what does that say about China's perspective on global governance? Well, I think it's a it's a reversion in a sense to what the Western countries often claimed, which was that they were pursuing some sort of liberal order, which was based on mutual interest, really. But it wasn't that. It was one based on domination, basically. And this divide and rule role that the US has played in West Asia is particularly striking. I mean, the Latin Americans know about it, too. But the all of the wars in the last 20 years really have been driven by the US um, ambition to try and dominate the region, have its main proxies, the Israeli state and and the Saudis, to dominate it. And that's been failing quite 
quite significantly. It's quite notable. And so China stepping into that role as a, uh, a big power able to broker some new relationships and open up the possibilities of mutual benefit is, is a substantial change and, a, and a, a breath of fresh air, frankly, according to a lot of what a lot of the people in the region have told me. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Tim Manderson, Director of Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. This is World Today. I'm Zhaoying. British lawmakers in the House of Commons have backed a report which found that Boris Johnson had deliberately misled MPs over lockdown parties at Downing Street. The report found the former UK Prime Minister have committed repeated offences when he said COVID rules had been followed at number 10 at all times. Boris Johnson had lashed out at the report and said he's being targeted politically. For more, we are now joined on the line by Duncan Bartlett, a London-based journalist and editor of Asian Affairs magazine. Duncan, welcome back to our show. Good to speak with you again. Um, so first of all, can you tell us more about the key findings of this report? Well, the most important thing is that the report said that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, misled Parliament on a number of occasions when he was questioned about parties that had taken place at Downing Street during the lockdown. And as time has passed, we've learned more about what went on at those parties. So, for example, a video emerged of a whole group of Conservative Party members dancing to Christmas records in December 2020. Well, in December 2020, the country was under a very strict lockdown. There were very strong social distancing rules. So nobody should have been having a party. Mr. Johnson told the MPs that he had no knowledge of the parties, that they didn't happen, and that all the rules were kept. But, you know, the investigating committee, uh, the parliamentary uh, committee, uh, the privileged committee in Parliament, disagreed with uh, Mr. Johnson's interpretation. Now, the striking thing about yesterday's uh, development on the story, which was that uh, the majority of MPs voted to support the report and thus to censure Mr. Johnson, is that actually Mr. Johnson's already quit as a member of Parliament, so he can't really be punished in that way. Although, of course, this does actually very firm, very strongly affect his reputation, and that will impact his future political plans, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, Boris Johnson has strongly criticized the report. He said it's a witch hunt and accusing the committee of acting like a kangaroo court. What is your assessment of this uh, response? I think the general view is that the committee tried to be fair and it had representation from the different political parties, including Mr. Johnson's own party, the Conservatives. Having said that, The chair of the committee, Harriet Harman, has long been a bit of a political opponent to Mr. Johnson. She's in a different party. And so Mr. Johnson's criticism was particularly aimed at her. He said this was a political assassination. So, you know, what some people have said, this is perhaps a little bit like Donald Trump. Uh, You know, when he's been uh, in trouble uh, in America or taken uh, court on various charges recently, what he's done, he said that the justice system is broken. He's lashed out against the legitimacy of the courts and the legal system in the United States. And in, in fact, this is pretty much what Boris Johnson has done. He's, he's tried to undermine the legitimacy of the Privileges Committee. And actually, the members of the Privileges Committee were very cross about that, and they criticized him for doing that. And 
uh, undermining the, uh, the, the, the validity of the committee uh, was one of the things that they were particularly angry about and included in their report. Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, um, Boris Johnson has already resigned as MP, but still, what do you think are the potential political ramifications for Boris Johnson following the publication of this report, both within his own party and also in the wider political landscape? If you read what he said when he resigned as an MP a couple of weeks ago before the report was published, he made it clear that he was resigning as an MP for now. Mm -hmm. In his own mind, this was a temporary measure. But, you know, he's going to leave the House of Commons. He's already left, actually. There's going to be a by-election in the uh, constituency that he represents. And it's very likely, actually, the Conservatives are going to lose. So, you know, the question would be if he did come back as an MP or perhaps even as a candidate to be mayor of London again, the job that he's done before, would he have the support of the Conservative Party? It doesn't look like it. Having said that, you know, there must be some division within the Conservative Party because a very large number of Conservative MPs didn't attend that vote in the House of Commons. They abstained. They found other things to keep them occupied. They pretended that they were busy. And that's because they know... But actually, within the country, Mr. Johnson still has his supporters. He's still in some ways a popular figure with hardcore uh, loyalists. Although, you know, as I say, this uh, issue of partying at a time when people were very worried about the impact of the spread of the coronavirus and were staying at home and trying to keep the rules, that doesn't sit well with most people. Well, notably, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has also chosen to skip the debate and abstained from the vote. How do you interpret this decision and what does it say about his ability to to lead a party that's becoming increasingly divided? Well, the opposition Labour Party say that the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was weak. And they say that 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 fact that he didn't go and vote in the Commons was a sign of his weakness. Um, Mr Sunak is obviously trying to limit the amount of damage to him personally caused by Mr Johnson. Because he was actually, you know, a member of the cabinet with Mr. Johnson. They were close political colleagues. Now, of course, he doesn't want to uh, see all the uh, damage to the reputation of the Conservative Party. But, you know, it's not just one uh, MP that's quit. Four MPs from the Conservative Party have quit the Commons in the last month, which means that there's going to be four by-elections, including that one I just mentioned, Mr. Johnson's constituency. That could lead to a swing towards other political parties, most notably the Labour Party. So actually, there'll be a lot of damage to Mr. Sunak's government as a result of this affair. Mm -hmm. And how does this report and also the actions of Boris Johnson during the Partygate scandal reflect on the broader issue of transparency, accountability and ethical conduct in government? Well, I think it has raised some very serious questions about ethical conduct, as you put it, because, you know, all the major television bulletins, including the BBC, the one I used to work for, have been saying Boris Johnson has been proven to be a liar. He was lying to the country. He was lying to people when he was prime minister. Now, that's not good, of course, for the reputation of the political system. Uh, Mr. Johnson won the last election. We haven't had an election for a prime minister since he won, actually. So I think overall, this leaves a bad taste. On the other hand, you could say, well, look, there was a a system in place which uh, fearlessly looked at the issues, 
and came to the conclusion that uh, Mr Johnson had been dishonest. That shows that the system of checks and balances is working, actually, because uh, he didn't get away with it. Mm-hmm. Well, also, a former Prime Minister Theresa May says that the vote would be a small but important step in restoring people's trust in Parliament. Do you agree with her, and, and do you believe that the vote can help restore public confidence in parliamentary institutions? I don't think, actually, the vote makes all that much difference, because it, it wasn't a vote to punish Mr Johnson, really. It was just a, it was a vote to endorse the report. You know, the, the thing that's going to affect uh, people's decisions when they come to the uh, polling booth, which probably will not be until uh, an election, probably in the uh, autumn of 2024, is going to be the, the, the ongoing damage, really, to the reputation of the Conservative Party uh, as a result of this scandal. But not just that, there'll also be considerable concern about the strikes in the UK uh, and the cost of living crisis and the very high rate of uh, inflation, particularly food inflation. So there are quite a lot of serious domestic issues for this government to uh, face up to. And I think that that's going to impact uh, public opinion when it comes to the to the next election. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, Duncan Bartlett, a London-based journalist and a- editor of Asian Affairs magazine. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Major Chinese e-commerce platforms, including JD.com and Taobao, have reported brisk sales during this year's June 18th shopping festival. Data shows JD.com has added over 1,200 new categories to its platform, and sales of new tech-related products increased by 30%. For Tmall, over 2.5 million small and medium-sized merchants reported turnover exceeding the same period last year, Over 300 online shops reached 100 million yuan in transactions. The June 19th shopping festival is an important window for observing new consumption trends and serves as a barometer for China's consumer market. For more on China's consumption and the economy, our Zhao Yang spoke with Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Joe, thank you for your time. Could you first uh, break down the consumption data for us and provide some insights into this year's overall performance? Are we seeing that uh, there are some new trends happening in this year's uh, shopping festival? Yeah, we know that uh, for all the years, we have about two festivals of the consumption in the middle, and this is uh, the June 18th. So for nowadays, we see that there are some new trends that happening this year. Uh, I think that in my understanding, there are about two new characteristics. The first one is that we see that the market is more diversified and there are more individual separated markets are trying to be defined and trying to look at. So we are seeing that many new products are trying to meet the demands of the consumers in very specific areas and trying to make them feel better. And the second is that we have some uh, technology plus consumption products that has been sold very well this year. I think that is the reason that we are seeing many uh, artificial intelligence or the people are trying to welcome the new technology in their daily life. Mm. So there will be uh, more things consumed in these years. Mm. So what are your perceptions of the state of China's economy right now? How important is the domestic consumption, especially for this year? 
I think that for Chinese economy, I I should use a word of uh, recovering. So we are seeing that uh, recovering is happening, and I, I think that recovering at least uh, can be defined in three stages or three aspects. The first one is that confidence is recovering. The people are really confident with the uh, recovery of the economy. So in this regard, they can try to consume more things in this time and before they can really have the, you know, the income in the future. So the confidence is very important. And the second is that we see that the supply and the consumption, the two sides are rematching with each other that is something that happened you know before the COVID, and we are seeing that it's coming back mm -hmm. so more establishment of the relationships are uh, rematched and third one I, I think that is uh, you know uh, the both sides of the supply and demand are trying to promote each other by its own development so it's kind of some are trying to push for the new development, some new innovative things and trying to expand certain areas of products, trying to meet the different requirements from the consumption end. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the economic recovery this year, usually every month is doing better than the previous months. And China has been promoting the technological self-reliance and development of the high-end intelligent and green industry. How has this focus on the innovation-driven development contribute to the growth of this year? Actually, innovation means that uh, we should try to improve the efficiency of uh, meeting the demand and also trying to have a better support for uh, diversified or multi-layers consumption demand. So we are not only trying to meet the, the traditional or old ways of consumption, but in a better ways to make it uh, more resilient to, to support the new consumption. You know, uh, as you mentioned about the new energy, about the uh, green economy, digital economies, there are many new elements are putting into the daily life of us. And uh, I don't think that there are perfect ways that we have, uh, you know, found in the world by any other country in this regard. So it's a, a really big and new topic for China to try to develop and explore. So in this regard, I, I think that innovation means that we can provide different choices for the consumptions, mm. uh, for the you know different consumers by the different enterprises in different channels. Mm. And that is definitely good for improving the efficiency. And at the same time, foreign direct investment has been increasing. So there are a lot of foreign business leaders visiting China such as uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, etc., etc. So what does it mean? And do you expect more to come? Yeah, I agree with you that there are many FDIs are trying to find more opportunities. I think China is one of the very potential destination areas or market for them to come here. But it's different uh, from the, the big companies and the smaller companies. The big companies are trying to explore better for longer term of uh, establishment of investment, while the smaller companies are trying to get more resilient on the supply chains. I think both of these kinds of uh, FDIs can find more opportunities here in China because we have a very stable and strong market and also very strong supply chains to support their connections and innovations. Mm -hmm. And take a look at the job market. We saw the urban unemployed number is still remain you know, stable at 5.2% in May, but it also the graduation season coming soon. So how is the outlook looking like for the young graduates? And for them, what's your suggestions? 
yeah, as we discussed before, it's not that easy for the new, uh, in, I mean, the graduate students coming into the employment market. But I think that uh, the most uh, biggest challenge is not only because of their own problems, it is also because of the economy of the society. We are in the in the process of transforming from the old mode of development to the new mode. Well, in this regard, not only the people, the employment, but also the enterprises are facing many challenges of the transfer. And uh, it's a, a much more requirement for us to improve our technology and uh, also the skills for the different new things. And that is definitely important for everyone of us to study continuously. Mm-hmm. And as we talk about the high unemployment among these young people, China actually is projecting 30 million manufacturing jobs going unfulfilled by the year 2025. So is there a mismatch really between the education that the young people are seeking and the jobs that are being very much needed in the manufacturing sector? Yes, I agree with you that, uh, you know, there are so many uh, very quick change for both sides of the supply and demand of the laborers. Actually, it's a, a really uh, big intention that I, I think that uh, Chinese economies are trying to improve our status as a manufacturing center of the world. Well, in this regard, more young people should not only try to remember what they have learned in the university, but trying to improve their abilities and technology or skills in using new tools, including the artificial tools and different of ways to be systematically way, uh, involved in the economy's cooperation. Mm. And looking forward to the rest of the year, what's your perception of how China's economy is going to do later this year? What are some of the main challenges and what's the outlook? I think that uh, although we are facing many challenges, including the geopolitical uh, instabilities, we are having more opportunities or space to explore by the strengthening of the supply chains and trying to put more elements or factors of the innovative things to be integrated in the economic development. So in this regard, I still uh, believe that uh, there are maybe two ways. Uh, first, the Chinese own domestic market, we are growing very quickly and we are becoming more stronger and resilient. Well, the second is that we are establishing better connections with many other countries, including not only for the developing country, but also for some developed economies in the world. And in this regard, I do have some more confidence that uh, we can try to uh, recover even stronger in the later period of this year. That's Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.